Welcome to Matan's Parsha podcast, Sefer Dvarim. Each week, a different Matan teacher will share words of Torah to illuminate the Parsha and your week. Today's shiur on Parshat Ki will be given by Rabbanit Nechama Golden Barash, who teaches contemporary halacha and Talmud at Matan, and studied in Matan's Advanced Talmud Institute and in Hilchata, a program for the Advanced Study of Halacha. The Torah portion of Kitetze opens up with five verses that describe the possibility of taking a captive woman into the Israelite home. This narrative has often been used to suggest that the Torah permits battlefield rape to assuage the unbridled lust of soldiers at war. Several years ago, um, a military head of the rabbinate in the IDF became caught up in controversy when he was quoted as having taught in a Torah class that raping a non-Jewish woman during war, while not desirable, was permitted because of this parsha. If we look carefully, however, we discover that rabbis and others are heavily influenced by rabbinic and halachic interpretations of the text in clear contradiction of the simple meaning or the simplest reading, plainest reading of the Torah text. Furthermore, battlefield rape was never sanctioned, not by the Torah, nor by the interpretations that followed. Let's take a look at the opening psukim. We're in chapter 21 of Sefer Dvarim, verses 10 to 14. What we have here is, Ki so let's start with the opening psukim. When a man who goes out to war, an Israelite warrior, goes out to war against your enemies, and your God delivers them into your power, and you take some of them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire her and would take her to wife. So already the impetus for the parsha tells us that um, this is during wartime against your enemies. It's a situation in which God has already given the enemy into your hand. It's not in the uh, caught up in the kind of bloodlust of war in the height of the battle. It's really after the battle is over and you've begun to take captives and you see among the captives a beautiful woman. And the, the phrase in the Torah is Yifat Toar. We know from the Torah many other situations of Yifat Toar, particularly in Sefer Breshi, we know that uh, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, particularly Rivka and Rachel, are described as Yefo Toar. Yosef is described as Yefe Toar. We know that beauty triggers the visual stimulus. In fact, in all of the stories about beauty, and they're really um, they're really grouped in Sefer Breshit, and then again in uh, Sefer Shmuel, Aleph, and Bet around David Hamelach's family, we have um, beautiful people often whom are um, visually um, visible. In other words, people see them, people desire them. There is both a danger in being seen through that lens and also a privilege in that we know that uh, Yosef and Esther and uh, other characters in Tanakh are able to use their beauty 
to uh, to do good or to do bad, uh, depending on how they make their choices. And here what we see is that the Yifat Toar stands out, the beautiful captive woman stands out because of her beauty. She's visually desirable, which is why the Ra'ita, right, the Israelite warrior sees her, and then that is what triggers Vichashaktabah, his desire, and, um, and there's something very relevant and resonant about that process of seeing the woman desiring her and then notice what the Torah describes um, this is not a description of a moment of lust which is satiated in the moment the Torah basically says and uh, you would take her as wife in other words seeing the beautiful captive woman is not a moment of succumbing to lust it's uh, an invitation to take this woman as wife that is what the Torah assumes the Israelite soldier is considering and then what happens next is and uh, and you will bring her, says the Torah. And this is told very much in the form of a command. Once you're already in this process of desiring a woman and taking her, then begin a series of uh, rituals and responsibilities before she actually will become wife. And let's see what those are. You take her into your home. You can't leave her in the barn or in the field. She actually comes into Beitecha, your home, your house, and then you... um you gilcha et rosha. It's a question. Are you shaving her head? Are you giving her a haircut? Um, you are, uh, you are doing something. You are responsible for bringing her into your home and carrying out some rituals. On the face of it, the most obvious reading are rituals that clean her up, right? You cut her hair. You do her nails. Uh, the obvious reading is you pare her nails. Um, and then you remove her garment of captivity from upon her and then um, after she has gone through this process of uh, hair cutting, nail cutting, removal of clothing, the clothing in which she was taken captive in, um, she sits in your home. She cries over her mother and father. There's a mourning process that the Torah is describing. First, there's a transition through uh, cleaning her up uh, and then bringing her into your, she's in your home and she sits and she cries for Yerech Yamim, which is a month of days. And what you then have a description of, only then can you come in unto her and have sexual relations with her and then she finally becomes wife. And so in chapter 13 really um, uh, reconnects to verse 11, right? She, she only actually becomes wife, becomes your woman, is open to you for sexual relations, which is a sign of marital intimacy. After she's gone through this process of, uh, of the hair, the nails, the clothing, and the yerech yamim, that's not a short amount of time that she's sitting in your home and openly mourning for the life that is no longer. And then the Torah has one more verse, and for many modern scholars, this really emphasizes the humanity, uh, uh, really palpable in these psukim. Vahaya <laughs> 
Yosef, Lo titamer batachat asher inita. You must not sell her, um, sorry, the, the beginning of the verse, then should you no longer want her, you must release her outright. The Torah understands that after that moment of desire, is uh, is met, right? Finally, you've had sexual relations, this beautiful woman, you've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and there's release. We saw that in verse 13. If you no longer desire her, it wasn't what you thought. It causes more tension in the household than is really worthwhile. Then you must, wherever she wants to go, you must release her so she can go where she desires. You may not sell her for money. It's not because the Torah is taking a stance against slavery. In fact, captive men and women in the Torah are Canaanite slaves or in the category of Canaanite slaves and they can be bought and they can be sold. Um, However, this woman, because she was taken into your home as wife, may not be sold for money. And then the Torah ends, since you had you, your will of her, you must not enslave her. In other words, what you put her through, which was already uh, a complicated process for a woman coming out of another tribe, another nation into your home, to be wife, uh, the fact that you had sexual relations with her as wife, and then you want to discard her, you want to release her, that's a form of inui, says the Torah. Um, you've been the master over her. And it's interesting because, again, slavery is allowed. So why are we suddenly showing this kind of compassion? For a woman who could have been slave if she wasn't singled out. Somehow the Torah is suggesting that then throwing her into the slave market would be um, a hideous form of abuse above and beyond what normal captives would experience on the slave market. I mean, that would, that would be what they, they would expect. Somehow pulling her out of that, taking her into your home, transitioning her into uh, the rituals and into the home life that is uh, the Israelite household and then rejecting her is considered to be an inui, a kind of mastery or domination that requires you to release her and not just begin to sell her on the market as, uh, as, as a slave. And so uh, if we take a look at the psukim, really, it's actually quite fascinating um, to think about what is going on here. Really, we see elements of transition, of maybe purification, of uh, of somehow turning her into wife in uh, a woman who comes from another culture, another nation, cannot go through the same marriage ceremony that uh, the B'nai Yisrael or the B'not Yisrael would undergo. And so really, the sexual relations at the end are the sign of uh, uh, of the marriage. And modern biblical scholars interpret the Parsha as a humane text that is intended to obligate the Israelite to behave with forbearance and to take into consideration the feelings of the woman. The Torah has mandated the desired conduct in a situation where there seems to be concern for immoral and uncontrolled behavior. Captive women have always been vulnerable byproducts of war from ancient times until today. The text seems to mitigate the possibility of physical or sexual violence by directing the soldier away from the battlefield and into the home. The rituals that she performs or um, that that she performs on herself. I perhaps I wasn't clear enough that the language of the Torah actually is Vigilchat Roshava Stat Siporneha is really that um 
She trims her hair. She pairs her nails. She, he doesn't force the rituals upon her. He uh, guides her into these rituals and she performs them on her own body. She removes her clothing. And, um, and so, you know, the, certainly these rituals reflect possible mourning customs in the ancient Near East or possibly transitioning the woman. And she goes through the transition process actively. She's then given a month to cry. And at the very end, she's transformed from status of captive to one of married women within the community she has been forced to join. And um, early pre-Rabbinic interpretation, and I'm talking about during the Second Temple period, the late Second Temple period, really reinforces the, the reading of the text as I have presented it. Um, and you know, if we go back and we look at the Temple Scroll, which is uh, coming out of the Dead Sea, Dead sea com- the community down by the Dead Sea, uh, Philo, Josephus, really early um, interpretations and translations of Torah I, I want to just pause and read a little bit from Philo, because Philo, uh, 70 CE, a Jewish philosopher in Alexandria, really, to me, um, understands what the Torah is getting at, mm-hmm. and we're going to you know, transition to rabbinic text and midrashic text, but before we do so, I want to uh, read a little bit from this text that I think most powerfully reinforces a compassionate and humane reading of the Yafat Toar. Philo on the virtues 110 to 115. Moreover, if after having taken prisoners in a sally, you should entertain a desire for a beautiful woman among them, do not satiate your passion, treating her as a captive, but act with gentleness and pity her change of fortune and alleviate her calamity, regulating everything for the best. And you will alleviate her sufferings if you cut the hair of her head and trim her nails and take off from her the garment which she wore when she was taken prisoner and leave her alone for 30 days, during which period you shall permit her with impunity to mourn and bewail her father and her mother and her other relations from whom she has been separated by their death or by their being subjected to the calamity of slavery, which is worse than death. So Philo recognizes that her family may not be dead, but she's been separated by them. And if they've been taken into slavery, the thoughts of what their lives now look like are just unbearable. She needs to mourn that, mourn that loss and mourn that changed uh, fortune of her family and her community. And after that period, you shall cohabit with her as with a legitimate wedded wife. For it is right that one who's about to ascend the bed of her husband, not for hire, like a harlot who makes a traffic of the flower of her beauty, but either out of love for him who has espoused her or for the sake of the procreation of children, which should be thought worthy of the ordinances which belong to a legitimate marriage, on which account the lawgiver has given all his laws with great Beauty. And basically Philo says, look, th- she becomes wife after the sexual relations. She's not a harlot. He's not ascending her bed as if she's a, a prostitute for hire. Essentially, either um, there is love there or for children. In other words, both, you know, love and, and procreation are two different aspects of the marital relationship. And, um, you know, Philo admits not everyone gets married for love. Not everyone has sexual relations for love. And it's possible that, um, that, that, 
part of the reason he's taken her is for procreation. And then the final paragraph, for in the first place, he had not permitted, meaning God, the lawgiver, has not permitted appetite to proceed onwards in its unbridled course with stiff-necked obstinacy, but he has checked its vehement impetuosity, compelling it to rest for 30 days. And Father says, look, the purpose of the Torah is to give the soldier time to really think about whether he wants to bring this woman into his household with all that that's going to represent, all the challenges that's going to be represent, and it should not be based on lust, on uh, unbridled lust. And in the second place, he has tested love. And again, he reinforces this. It's not only about um, neutralizing the, the appetite, the sexual appetite, but it's testing whether this was just a frantic passion or whether there might be pure essence of well-tempered reason, for reason will br- bridle the desire. And basically, at the end of the month, after he's seen her, after he's been forced to kind of watch her go through this process in his household, uh, he will have to evaluate more rationally whether he wants to continue before he uh, takes her as wife, before he has sexual relations with her as wife. And so uh, I'm going to pause here and just summarize that the psukim in the Torah and the earliest strata of a biblical interpretation, which is, as I said, pre-rabbinic, before uh, before Chazal begin writing down their interpretations, um, the very, very compassionate and humane and recognizing um, the plight of this woman. And I'll also say the opportunity. In other words, I've talked a lot about the mourning that the woman is uh, is. Representing, you know, she's going through a stage of mourning. She's transitioning. On the other hand, her beauty has caught the eye of the soldier, so that she's being relieved from the terrible fate, as Philo says, worse than death of slavery. So her beauty presents an opportunity. It also makes her vulnerable to being visible. So the Torah seems to understand uh, that that divide or that the potential here to be wife, and at the same time, the loss of her previous identity. Rabbinic interpretation drastically changes the way we read this parsha. Written down well after the Second Temple has been destroyed, Midrash Halacha from the Tanaitic period, ending in around 220 CE, encounters a reality in which Jews are no longer waging offensive wars which could result in captive women. The subsequent interpretation no longer needs to consider the practical consequence of bringing these women home, along with the possible impact such women will have on the Jewish community. In other words, the focus is not so much the practical consequence of captives of war, the concern is the possible impact bringing non-Jewish women will have on the Jewish household and on the Jewish community. It relates to the text in a multi-layered way, mining it for readings that will bring relevant ideas to the Jewish population it addresses. One Midrashic reading, heavily influenced by Rabbi Akiva's school of interpretation, sees the woman as Satan who will lead the Israelite man astray. And I'm now going to quote the text. It's in a text called Midrash Tanaim. And I'll say that really this Midrashic interpretation, which is quoted partially by Rashi, has had tremendous uh, impact on how we read 
the, the, the Torah's Parsha here as often Midrash does. And we're not always aware even sometimes of how heavily influenced we are by Midrashic interpretation until perhaps we listen to a shear or, or uh, read an article in which it's called to our attention. So here is what the Midrash Tanaim has to say. When Rabbi Akiva used to interpret the meaning of this section, he would say, quote, ah, those who haul sins with cords of falsehood and iniquity as with cart ropes, end of quote. And that's a verse from Isaiah. This means that the beginning of sin is like a spider's web and its end is like the cables that draw a chariot. How does this entire passage begin? When you take the field and you see among the captives a beautiful woman. Then one does it say, if a man has two wives, one loved and the other loved. One unloved and the other loved. This man brought Satan into his house, and from her he bore a wayward, defiant son, Ben Sora And what is the fate of the wayward and defiant son? To be a man guilty of a capital offense. So what happens here is Rabbi Akiva weaves together the four different scenarios, the distinctly different scenarios, each of which end with a samach in the Torah. So the Torah is basically telling us this is a sof, meaning each unit is an individual unit in and of itself on its own. Rabbi Akiva's interpretation comes and weaves together a thread through each of these subtexts in chapter 21 and links them together into a narrative. If you bring a captive woman home, then she will be the second wife who is unloved, and yet she will have the firstborn son. And that's not really fair because you're going to have the firstborn son who inherits twice from the unloved wife. That's going to cause a lot of dissent and hostility in the household. And that firstborn son, he's going to become the Ben Soromora, the wayward and defiant son who will have to be stoned to death by his, uh, by the town's council. And, um, and if he survives that, then he will become a, uh, a man guilty of a capital offense. In other words, if he doesn't become a Ben Soromora in practice, in other words, only in, in theory, he, he acts like a wayward and defiant son, but he's not put to death, right? Because by the time Rabbi Akiva is writing, there is no capital punishment. The Beit Din is not executing anyone. So midrashically, that would not be his fate. What will be his fate is he'll become a, a man guilty of a capital offense. Essentially, he'll become a murderer. So if you bring this captive woman into your home, the terrible influence she's going to have on the family, on the community, on the nation is, is just incalculable. And Rabbi Akiva throughout in other Midrashic interpretations as well, continuously sees the woman as a corrupting presence. Just to give two small examples, in, um, in the Sifrei Dvarim, another Midrash Tanaim, another Tanaitic Midrash on the Parsha, there's a contrast between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Akiva, as I said, the woman is corrupting. Rabbi Eliezer understands that the Torah gives a woman a month to cry for her parents. We've already described that. The pshat, the simple reading is, she is being allowed to mourn in such a compassionate way the loss of hearth and home. Rabbi Akiva dismissively interjects that she is crying only for her idols. In one dramatic passage, Rabbi Akiva criticizes the woman for having adorned herself and gone out to the battlefield with her friends to seduce the children of Israel. He compares her to a pumpkin who will sit at the entrance to the home, bald because her head's been shaved, with 
nails that have grown into talons. Instead of cutting the nails, the nails are grown and force the man to confront her in all of her literal and metaphorical ugliness. Through the prism of this interpretation, which deviates greatly from the more straightforward reading of the Torah, we can understand that Rabbi Akiva is taking a strong stand against foreign influences. These virtual captive women come from outside and embed themselves inside the community, despite the continuous warnings in the Torah itself that intermarriage with idol worshippers will turn the hearts of the children of Israel astray. And yet... In this case, the Torah is allowing it. And Rabbi Akiva says, no, we can't have any possibility of allowing intermarriage, even though the Torah brings an example in which it is uh, allowed by the dictates of the Torah. In another Midrashic reading of this parsha, Rashi brings an interpretation from the school of Rabbi Yishmael, another Tana. So we've seen Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Eliezer, and now I'm bringing Rabbi Yishmael. He explains the whole parsha as a concession to the evil inclination. According to this approach, the rituals serve as an attempt to neutralize the soldier's desire, either by removing her hair or nails or dress in order to force the soldier to recognize what his desire has caused. According to Rabbi Ishmael, is it her hair that attracted him? Is it her nails? Because women would adorn their nails even in the ancient world, much like they do today with their gel manicures and their nail building. Or was it the clothing she was wearing? Just to remind the listener, we had read the Torah as largely cleaning her up I could bring lots of psukim to support that reading, that she's coming out of captivity in a state of uh, uh, unhygienic state, dirty clothing. It's what she wore into captivity. Here, Rabbi Ishmael says, like Rabbi Akiva, no, she's wearing beautiful clothing. That might have attracted the eye of the soldier. Her hair is beautifully adorned. Her nails are decorated. And so in order to neutralize his lust, what we have to do is remove all of those impediments. This is a little bit like Philo. How can we get him to rationally evaluate what he's done? Um, Philo sees the end of taking her as wife as a positive, uh, a positive ending. Rabbi Ishmael would see it as a negative, not in the same way as Rabbi Akiva, quite as starkly as Satan, but nonetheless, before you make this move, make sure you really evaluate what it is you are doing. And in both schools of Midrash, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Ishmael, Sexual relations only take place after the rituals and mourning period. Uh, really, that is in keeping with the verses of the Torah. So up until this point, through the Tanaitic period, we don't really have battlefield rape as an option. Rabbi Akiva certainly wants to delay that moment so that he will send her away, he will reject her before it comes to uh, the marital bed. Rabbi Ishmael wants to make sure that he's not coming to the marital bed in a, in a you know kind of lustful haste, uh, without and with with frenetic passion, without any accountability or sense of what he's doing. So, in all of the midrashic early midrashic schools. Really, um, the, the sexual relations are delayed in keeping with our reading of the, uh, of the psukim. So where did the idea of battlefield rape come from? Well, in an unprecedented manner, the Babylonian Talmud presents the permissibility of an initial act of sexual relations, what's called bia rishona, as a concession to the evil inclination. Now, 
the idea that the parsha is a concession to the evil inclination was seen in Rabbi Ishmael, who says, look, yes, he's allowed to bring her home because of his Yetzer Hara, but he's actually not allowed to do anything for 30 days. The Bavli comes along and says, how's that possible? If a man has a strong Yetzer Hara, if he has tremendous lust for this woman, we can't possibly expect him to wait for 30 days. And so the permissibility is for this initial act as a concession before beginning the process that will turn her into wife. And it's important to recognize that that is, uh, you know, a, a post-Tanaitic interpretation. In other words, as I've mentioned, this is no longer practical. I mean, this is not applied law by the time the Talmud is, uh, is, is being written down. And really, I would, uh, would suggest strongly that the Babylonian Talmud is reflecting on the Yetzar Hara. What does it mean to have an evil inclination to be overcome by lust? And so, um, the Bavli comes up with this very interesting and to some degree painful idea, if we think of it practically, that this would allow an initial act of sexual relations, essentially rape on the battlefield. I will just add two caveats, which is that the Bavli already suggests that the rape cannot, or the Bia Rishona, cannot actually be on the battlefield. He has to move her to a more discreet location before having sexual relations with her. And then the Rambam in um, Hilchot Malachim, chapter 8, adds that once he's had sexual relations with her, machnisa letoch beto, he can't just leave her. He actually must take her into his home. So even the, the what I would call the perhaps less compassionate reading or the stronger um, emphasis on Yetzer, on the lust of the Israelite man that allows for this Biyarishona, this first act of sexual relations, nonetheless requires a continuation of the pro- process when the war is over. He must take her into the home. He must at least go through uh, the process until he is uh, determined one way or the other to keep her as wife or to send her away. But there is accountability. It's not just a moment of lust and then off he goes. Uh, there is accountability. And I think that is important to reinforce in a reading that I believe is often taken out of context. Um, and so this Parsha illustrates um, the evolution in interpretation that exists between biblical text and rabbinic interpretation. Uh, what I've taken you through is really a, uh, as careful a reading of, as possible of the Psukim, uh, a move towards um, early non-rabbinic interpretation during the Second Temple period where we saw an affirmation of uh, what I believe is the Pshat, and then a movement towards Tanaitic uh, Midrash, the differences of opinion between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer staying closer to the Pshat reading. Rabbi Akiva uh, really underscoring the concern he has for Gentile women coming into the Israelite household. Rabbi Yishmael, who uh, focuses on how to neutralize the the lust uh, that has been trigger, triggered by the beauty of this woman. Um, and we saw a little bit of how that interpretation worked. And then moving towards the later, the Bavli, the later Amoraitic interpretation, which 
allows Bia Rishona, but certainly if we conclude with Rambam, who says that Bia Rishona then uh, requires accountability and process and bringing her into his home, um, we see that there actually is um, a lot of humanity and compassion that continues to some degree, with the exception perhaps of Rabbi Akiva, um, throughout the uh, throughout the layers and years of interpretation. And just to go back to the words of the Torah, contending with the reality of warfare, um, the Torah presents a moral and compassionate approach to a difficult reality in which uh, B'nai Israel will find themselves, especially on the eve of going into the land of Israel and for many years after. And, um, and we can only take with us, perhaps, some of the lessons of humanity and compassion to those who are less fortunate and vulnerable uh, among ourselves, within our fa- families and our communities, and sometimes even outside. And perhaps that can be a message and a lesson we can internalize in the coming days. Thanks for listening. You can stream and download all Matan podcast episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website. Feel free to share feedback with us as you listen. You can write us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Lastly, please do Matan Podcast and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new audiences. Shabbat Shalom.